episode of the MDS podcast, the official podcast of the International Parkinson and Movement Disorder Society. My name is Eduardo de Pablo Fernandez and I'm one of the neurologists at the UCL Queen Square Brain Bank in London. Today we are going to discuss the paper titled The Impact of Type 2 Diabetes in Parkinson's Disease, which was recently published in the Movement Disorders Journal. I have the pleasure to welcome Dr. Dylan Apauda, who is the main author of the paper, to this edition of the MDS podcast. He's an academic uh, neurologist working at UCL Queen Square Institute of Neurology and the Francis Crick Institute. Welcome to the podcast, Dylan, and thank you very much for your time. Thank you for having me. So we are going to discuss your paper on the impact of type 2 diabetes in Parkinson's disease. There's been a lot of literature about the association between these two conditions, and this goes back a few decades. Recently, there has been a growing evidence from different fields of research, epidemiology, clinical studies that have added more evidence to this association. And more recently, diabetes has been included as a risk factor for prodromal Parkinson's disease. What's the association about? Is this more than just peripheral hyperglycemia driving more cerebrovascular disease? Are there any other mechanisms involved? I think that's a really interesting question. And I think to answer that, you'd have to look back at the epidemiological data that's been shown over the last few years. And as you rightly mentioned, there's growing evidence to say that diabetes is a newly identified risk factor for the development of Parkinson's. When you look back at the epidemiological studies and the meta-analyses of these studies, you'll see that if you have type 2 diabetes, you're around 40% more likely to develop Parkinson's disease than if you don't have type 2 diabetes. And interestingly, one of the first things that people often question rightly is is this all due to an increased vascular risk? So people with type 2 diabetes and hypertension tend to have other vascular risk factors and they tend to have more cerebrovascular disease. That's what's thought. And often that's been thought to be the main link between these two conditions. However, these epidemiological studies have mostly confirmed that not to be the case when they've accounted for people with vascular risk factors and used these confounders. And the link between type 2 diabetes and Parkinson's disease is still strong once you exclude all the people with vascular disease or account for them, which means there's other mechanisms that are probably playing a part. And there's a few competing theories into what links type 2 diabetes and Parkinson's. One thing that I'm particularly interested in is the insulin resistance links between these two diseases. Type 2 diabetes is characterized by peripheral insulin resistance. And there's now a lot of evidence to say that a form of insulin resistance occurs in the brains of people with Parkinson's as well and also the brains of people with other neurodegenerative diseases, such as Alzheimer's. And we think that this development of insulin resistance is thought to be the common link between these two conditions. Other potential theories include an increased risk of glycation or glycation, whereby if you have type 2 diabetes, then there's an increased risk of an irreversible chemical reaction called glycation that occurs on some of the proteins that are involved in type 2 diabetes called alpha-synuclein. And it leads to a more aggressive aggregated form, and that leads to more inflammation and more disease process. And that might also be linking these two common conditions. This is very interesting that shared mechanisms between these two apparently uh, different conditions, not that they have like a common role in the central nervous system. Uh, we will go back to the mechanisms a bit later. But now focusing a bit more on your paper, there's been a lot of epidemiological studies 
showing that predating type 2 diabetes is a risk factor for Parkinson's disease, but it seems that also having type 2 diabetes can modify the phenotype and the disease progression in Parkinson's disease. And that's what you are addressing with your study. Tell us a bit about the evidence type 2 diabetes is a disease modifying factor and the aim of your study. Up until our paper was published, there's been a few smaller studies suggesting that if you have type 2 diabetes, you tend to have more severe Parkinson's. So you might have a bit more severe motor symptoms. And these studies have tended to be using smaller numbers of people with Parkinson's and type 2 diabetes and looked mainly at the motor symptoms. So the studies up to now have shown that if you have type 2 diabetes, then you might have more tremor, more rigidity and concentrating on the motor aspects of Parkinson's. What we wanted to do was to see whether having type 2 diabetes actually altered the disease progression or the course of Parkinson's if you have type 2 diabetes. So what we did was we used a publicly available data set called Trekking Parkinson's Cohort, which is led by Donald Gossett and Hugh Morris. And it comprises around 2,000 individuals with Parkinson's who were recently diagnosed with Parkinson's. So everyone enrolled in the study had Parkinson's on average around 12 to 15 months before they were enrolled. And they've been followed up for around six to eight years. And the advantage of this cohort is that they had a large number of uh, individuals with Parkinson's. And also each individual had a lot of descriptive data, either about their age, their medication, but also about their Parkinson's, but also about other conditions such as type 2 diabetes. There was lots and lots of data about the types of symptoms they have, not just the motor symptoms, but also the non-motor symptoms. And we use this data set to look at the association between Parkinson's and type 2 diabetes. And we did two main analyses. So the first type of analysis we did was a cross-sectional analysis. So we looked at the severity of people's Parkinson's at entry into the study. And we compared people who had type 2 diabetes and Parkinson's compared to people with Parkinson's. We identified about 170 people with Parkinson's and type 2 diabetes. And we compared that to the cohort with Parkinson's. And Obviously, the number of individuals in each group is very, very dissimilar. So in order to counteract any biases from that, we tried to statistically account for that as much as possible by addressing differences in age of onset, body mass index, vascular risk factors, hypertension, other medications, and duration of Parkinson's so that we could try to see whether the effects that we saw between these two groups were actually real. And what we discovered was that people who had type 2 diabetes did indeed have a much more severe form of Parkinson's. Looking at a snapshot of the severity of their Parkinson's, they had more severe motor symptoms. They had more severe problems with their walking. But also, for the first time that we've shown this, is that they also had more severe non-motor problems. So people with type 2 diabetes and Parkinson's tended to have more problems with depression, sleep problems, and a lot of other non-motor problems. And they also reported a worse quality of life compared to people without type 2 diabetes. And that was a snapshot in time. So the other analysis we looked at was whether having type 2 diabetes influenced how your Parkinson's progressed over time. And so when we looked at that, very interestingly, we found that if you had type 2 diabetes, you are more likely to have more severe motor symptoms over time, but also more severe mood problems such as depression and also you are much more likely, almost twice as likely, to develop problems with your walking and also problems with your thinking and memory compared to people without type 2 diabetes. So this is one of the first studies that has shown this in a large number of people with Parkinson's and type 2 diabetes that this seems to have an effect on the disease progress. Now, one of the very first obvious questions about this is that, well, we know 
quite reasonably that anyone who has two chronic diseases tends to do worse than people that have one chronic disease. So for instance, if you have heart disease, but you have heart disease and liver disease, for instance, obviously if you have two chronic conditions, you tend to have a worse outcome than people that just have heart disease, for instance. So this is called an additive effect. But we think this effect of type diabetes is not just an additive effect. It's not just a coincidence having two chronic diseases that you tend to be worse off. Now, yes, type 2 diabetes can affect certain things like you can get problems with the nerves that can cause problems with walking and also problems with tremor, but it also affects non-motor problems, which are a bit more difficult to explain. But also when you look at preclinical studies, type 2 diabetes and Parkinson's shares a lot of pathological processes. So both of these conditions involve problems with mitochondrial functioning, inflammation, protein aggregation. And there's evidence that on a cellular level, these two conditions can overlap and influence each other. Preclinical studies have shown that in models of diabetes using mice, if you feed mice a high fat diet to induce a peripheral insulin resistance or type 2 diabetes, these mice develop degeneration of their dopaminergic system and develop Parkinsonism. Interestingly, in humans as well, people with type 2 diabetes, but with no neurodegenerative disease or Parkinson's disease, when they undergo DAT scans and looking at their dopamine transporter uptake, they actually have reduced dopamine transporter uptake and a subclinical degeneration of their dopaminergic pathways compared to people without diabetes. So on a cellular level, there is an interaction between these two conditions. Therefore, we do think that it's much more than an additive effect, that there is an interactive effect. Interesting. One of the advantages of your study is the deeply phenotyped cohort that this is one of the first studies that addressed non-motor symptoms a bit more in depth and also allowed accounting for a lot of potential confounding factors such as vascular disease, BMI and so on. So despite all of the adjustments, it seems like the effect of diabetes on motor, non-motor symptoms and disease progression was still there. And you mentioned a lot of different potential mechanisms. The main goal of all these investigations in the association between these two conditions is to see whether there is any potential treatments for diabetes that could be repurposed, at least for some of the population of people with Parkinson's disease. You've been involved in some of these studies using exenatide, and you have discussed some of these molecular mechanisms that are shared by these two conditions. How is this progressing? Where are we at the moment? Do you think these medications will be approved soon to treat people with Parkinson's disease? Yeah, I think that's a really interesting question. So this all leads on from the work very, very early on a couple of decades ago, all the preclinical work from Nigel Gregg at the NIH. He first showed that these class of diabetic medication called GLP-1 agonists seem to be protective in cellular models of Parkinson's and in animal models of Parkinson's. And our group led by Thomas Fultony at UCL and the National Hospital of Neurology has led two exenotype trials in people with Parkinson's, two rather small trials. The first was an open label trial and the second was a randomized control trial. And these trials have consistently shown that people who are prescribed one of these diabetic drugs called exenotide, which is a GLP-1 agonist, a drug that acts on the GLP-1 receptor, seem to have better motor symptoms and non-motor symptoms compared to people who are not prescribed this drug. And these benefits were sustained well after the drug was stopped. So the question is, these trials were actually rather small, relatively speaking. So what we're doing now is we're in the middle of a phase three trial using a lot more individuals with Parkinson's across different sites in the country to see whether the signal of effect we picked up in the two trials previously 
is still there in a number of patients and in more patients with Parkinson's throughout the country. And I think that if that trial was to be successful or if it did show a positive signal, that would lead to much more impetus and much more confidence in saying that these drugs may be helpful in altering the disease course in people with Parkinson's. I think the mechanism is less important if we show a clinical effect. Obviously, the mechanism is crucial in terms of we need to understand why these drugs work. But I think that that question won't entirely be answered by the time the trial will be over. And I think we're expecting results from our exenotide phase three trial in 2024 so far. But there's also a number of other trials going across the world in France and the USA using different GLP-1 agonists. So other drugs in the same class in cohorts of people with Parkinson's, but also cohorts of people with Alzheimer's. And so it's a very exciting time to wait and see what these results will show. And they'll be coming in throughout the rest of the year and next year as well. We are looking forward to those results. As you mentioned, there is a lot of different mechanisms and, and Parkinson's disease is, is thought to be very heterogeneous from a pathogenic point of view. Do you think that these anti-diabetic drugs will be useful for everyone with Parkinson's disease, only for people with diabetes and Parkinson's disease? What do you think? Yeah, I think that's a question on really how this drug works. I think at the moment we know from the small number of people that we've, we've had on these trials, and it tends to be a type of people who tend to be responding more than others with this drug. And that tends to be people who are slightly younger, who've had Parkinson's for a bit less. But I think that the, the people who are affected, it's either going to be a subset of people with insulin resistance or type 2 diabetes who may benefit the most. But I think in terms of seeing if this affects people without peripheral insulin resistance or even brain insulin resistance, I think that's the answer that this trial is hoping to answer. And then it's only when we do our analyses that we can see who benefits the most from these medications that we'd be able to give you that answer in full and in detail. One of the clinical implications from our paper is that it's shown that having peripheral insulin resistance or type 2 diabetes affects the progression of Parkinson's. So clinically, whenever I see someone in clinic with a new diagnosis of Parkinson's or even later on, I always send off a glycolated hemoglobin some cholesterol and metabolic markers. And in the time that I've been doing that so far, I've picked up a number of people with peripheral insulin resistance or pre-diabetes. And I think that's always important. And although that may be coincidental, I think that's always important to address through lifestyle factors and, and weight loss and exercise. And I think that's just a good marker of general health. That's very interesting. And talking about clinical implications, there is a lot of evidence linking these two conditions and showing that diabetes may have a, a negative prognosis in disease progression and disability and quality of life. So when someone with diabetes comes to your clinic and you make the diagnosis of Parkinson's disease, what do you tell these patients? Is the evidence robust enough to start discussing this association in clinic and this potential bad prognosis? Well, I do discuss the evidence that generally having control of diabetes will have a number of health benefits, not just on Parkinson's, but on general health in terms of reducing the occurrence of stroke and heart disease. So I think that whenever I see someone with diabetes and Parkinson's, I always emphasize the importance of good diabetic control. And I make a point to write to the GP to ask that they ensure that their glycemic control or their blood sugar metabolism is really well controlled not just for reducing stroke risk and secondary prevention, but also potentially that it may help their Parkinson's. And I think that there's enough evidence to show that good control of diabetes can improve your outcomes in stroke and heart disease. And I think the evidence is starting to come forward now that it may affect your disease progression of Parkinson's as well. So 
having better control of your diabetes can only be a good thing. And I always write to the GP and also tell the person with Parkinson's in front of me that healthy eating, exercise and lifestyle measures and good blood pressure control are very important for managing type 2 diabetes, the complications that come out thereof, but also it may have a secondary effect on their Parkinson's as well. So I think that that's, uh, that's good whenever you see a patient with these conditions. Indeed, I think that approach is very important in treating uh, people with Parkinson's disease. Well, thank you very much for your time and the interesting discussion. It's been a pleasure to have you here in the MDS podcast, Dylan. Thanks very much for asking me to come and speak to you today. Thanks a lot. Thank you very much, everyone, for listening. And I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Bye-bye. If you enjoyed the conversation about this paper, you can further your experience with continuing medical credits, or CMEs. You can find the link to the journal CME course for this paper within the episode description on the MDS website. Journal CME is planned and implemented in accordance with the accreditation requirements of the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education, ACCME. The International Parkinson and Movement Disorder Society is accredited by the ACCME to provide a continuing medical education for physicians. The International Parkinson and Movement Disorder Society designates this education activity for a maximum of one AMA PRA Category 1 credits. The views and opinions expressed by the participants in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the International Parkinson and Movement Disorder Society or their affiliated journals, Movement Disorders and Movement Disorders Clinical Practice. Any disclosures of the participants can be found within the episode description located on the MDS website.